turn to Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. Thanks. Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. We'll read from there in just a moment. When Rich and I and Andrew Wilson and Robert and Jerry and others were thinking about what we're going to do this weekend, we felt quite stirred that actually, as we all gather, um, if you're expecting us as leaders to meet the individual needs of every single person in this room, then it's all going to be a bit of a flop. But actually, what we need, first and foremost, is a bigger view of who God is. And that's why Andrew did what he did so brilliantly yesterday, focusing on the cross, focusing on the God that Isaiah saw. And so what Rich and I are going to do is really develop some of those themes. And I guess it's a bit of a good cop, bad cop scenario. And actually, Rich gets to be the good cop. I know that's surprising, because I've never seen him smile ever. But he... He is going to be the good cop tomorrow. He's going to bring the good news. I'm not going to give you much good news this morning, in inverted commas. But actually, what I'm bringing is so vitally important. And if we don't get this and don't understand this, we will totally miss the benefits and the wonder of what Rich is going to bring tomorrow. Really, I'm going to talk about the wrath of God this morning and tomorrow Rich is going to be talking about the mercy of God. And they are not polar opposites. They are two sides of the same coin. Before we look at uh, these passages together, I want to just pick up on uh, a phrase I've written down here. What we do and how we behave carries consequences. What we do and how we behave carries consequences. I've just got back from a family holiday with uh, Janet, my wife, uh, my youngest son, uh, Chris, who was leading worship, and the keyboard player who came for the ride. (laughs) And uh, we went to the former Yugoslavia, uh, to a little country called Montenegro. And I learned this lesson during the holiday, that what I do and how I behave carries consequences. We had an incident in the middle of our family holiday, which became known as Black Thursday. (laughs) And in fact, the scope of this incident, it it got to the point where um, Chris and his mate Matt were actually running a book. They were taking bets on how long it would be into the family holiday where we were able to relax and joke about this particular incident. So one day we decided, halfway through the holiday, we were going to go to the beach. And we picked the beach, it was about an hour's drive away. And uh, by the time, you know what it's like when you go to a beach where you've never been before, and maybe you're abroad, it's all a bit confusing and and you're a bit stressed. So anyway, we parked the car, we walked down to the beach, We paid for our sun loungers, which was an exorbitant amount of money. So that got me really stressed. And I was pretty hot and bothered, actually. So I decided what I needed was a swim. 
So, Butters and I, Matt and I, dived in the water and off we went. There was an island about a quarter of a mile out and being heroic, athletic chaps that we are, we decided we were going to swim to the island. We got back and about 15 minutes later, I thought to myself, what did I do with the car keys? <laughs> the car keys are at the bottom of the Adriatic Sea. What we do and the decisions that we make in life carry consequences. And as the reality of that began to dawn on me, my stupidity, my carelessness, my lack of thought was now going to have profound consequences. Um, it, it was a very complicated situation. Because all our car hire documents, where we could get the phone number to ring the car, car, car company to sort it all out, where were they? They're in the car, of course. And uh, where were the keys for our apartment, which was an hour's drive away? They were in the car as well. And uh, in case you're wondering <laughs> whether the car is still abandoned, on a beach. We did manage to sort it out at huge expense and considerable uh, inconvenience. A, a car key was sent, couriered 500 miles away uh, from Zagreb. We got a taxi home that night. The following day, I managed to retrieve the car. Even that was a complication. I was told by the car hire company, if you go to a nearby town called Kator, at 11 o'clock outside a certain hotel, you'll see a man in a white t-shirt wearing sunglasses. He's got the key. But there was this nagging doubt in my mind. Is this key actually going to open my car door? And uh, amazingly, by the grace of God, it did. Because the car hire company even said to me on the phone, so what's the registration of your car. And I said, well, you've got the documents. My documents are locked away in a car an hour away. How on earth am I meant to answer that question? So I was a bit fearful that when they eventually sent the key, it was going to be the wrong one. So the motto of the story, there is a price to pay for stupidity and carelessness. Now, amusing though that is, as a story, the same is far more true when we're playing for much bigger stakes in the weighty issues of things like eternity, sin, judgment, heaven and hell. Actually, there is a price to pay for stupidity and carelessness. If we don't face up to these sober realities, we kid ourselves and we live in delusion. Many people, Christians as well as non-Christians, kid themselves and they fail to take this sort of thing seriously. And in doing that, what we're actually doing, we're selling the gospel short because we fail to appreciate just how good the good news of the gospel really is because we fail to see the problem of our sin and God's righteous anger at our sin. We've got to face the realities of the bad news before we appreciate just how good the good news really is. And uh, if you work through the book of Romans, and you see that Romans chapter 3 through to chapter 8, 
more than any other place in the whole of our New Testament, explains the uh, wonder and the glory of the gospel. Romans 3 to 8. And what is Romans 3 to 8 prefaced by? It's prefaced by Romans 1 and 2, where Paul talks very seriously about the depths of our sin, about God's righteous anger at our sin, and his judgment against sin. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, years ago, when he preached on Romans, he worked through this passage, and he talks in uh, his preaching that's now in, uh, written up in, in books about how it's a bit like um, those of us who are uh, generous, good husbands here this morning. When you bought your wife an engagement ring, you would have spent many, many thousands of pounds on it, wouldn't you? You would, Steve, wouldn't you? Undoubtedly. You'd have gone to a top Bond Street jeweller, Sarah's shaking her head, but I know you would have, Steve. A top Bond Street jeweller. And when you go to these top, top jewellers, we're not talking about, you know, little jewellers on our local high streets, but the top jewellers, and they bring out these diamonds worth thousands and thousands of pounds. And they always bring them out on this sort of black, velvety background. And the darker the background, the brighter the diamonds shine. And that's why Paul, in Romans 1 and 2, talks about the depths and the weight and the seriousness of sin, so that when he gets on to the glory and the truth of what Jesus has done, the real good news of the gospel, then actually it shines so much brighter. There are Christians today, in inverted commas, who don't like to talk about things like sin and hell and judgment. People have written books on it, even this year, in which they cast doubt on the whole idea of eternal judgment and hell. But that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years in the church. There was a guy, 1900 years ago, a guy called Marcion. And he was actually declared a heretic. He was kicked out of the church. He had a false teaching that the God of the Old Testament was a, really a different God from the God of the New Testament. Don't know whether you've ever had conversations with friends who are not Christians. And they say, well, I like the God of the New Testament. I like the idea of Jesus, sort of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's nice to children. And he doesn't beat people up. But I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I don't like the idea of a, a God who's wrathful against sin. A God who's vengeful. And actually, the God of the Old Testament for Marcion was this God of wrath and judgment. And the God of the New Testament is a soft, cuddly God of God of grace and mercy. A sort of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And what Marcion did... 1900 years ago, was he looked at all the books of the New Testament that had been written. They'd all been written by then. He's writing in the middle of the second century. And he began to throw away books that didn't fit in with his idea of the God of the inverted commas New Testament. So he ended up with a New Testament of only 15 books instead of 27 books. He basically, anything that wasn't Luke or Paul, he ditched from his New Testament. And the church said, no, actually what we need is the whole counsel of God. And the church were right 
to actually say, Marcion, you've got it totally wrong. But actually, we need to understand that the God of the Bible is the same God from Genesis right through to Revelation. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. So let's just um, read together. And uh, I'm really just picking out a couple of phrases from Revelation 6 and Revelation 19. And uh, when we look at this passage in Revelation 6, or Revelation 5 and 6, we, we were singing lines from this passage a few minutes ago. There was a line we were singing in the worship, Worthy is the Lamb. And we sing it as a worship refrain, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. But I want us to look carefully at this passage because we need to understand what John is writing when he writes down what is being sung about the worth of the Lamb, the worth of the Lord Jesus in heaven. Because what's being said is that only Jesus is worthy to bring God's righteous judgment on the whole of human history. That Jesus is worthy to execute justice and wrath on the nations, on the rich and the powerful, on the arrogant politicians, the rulers, the military, the brokers, the investment bankers, and ultimately, says John, on the whole human race. And this is a judgment taken by Father and Son together. So let's read. Yes, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the uh, fig tree sheds its winter fruit, when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and amongst the rocks and the mountains, calling on to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from the face of him who's seated on the throne." And from the wrath of the Lamb. That phrase really grabs my attention. The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Then flip over to Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are like many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he's a name which is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And it's this phrase in Revelation 6, the wrath of the Lamb, and Revelation 19, the wrath of God Almighty, that I really want to focus on. Right at the uh, beginning of his revelation that John has, obviously, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are are introductory. So you get to chapter 4, and John sees heaven opened and he has this amazing revelation and very near the start chapter 6 you get this phrase the wrath of the lamb and then right at the end you get this phrase the wrath of God almighty and what we see here is that Jesus the lamb the lamb that's slain before the foundation of the earth that's described in chapter 5 is not simply a soft, cuddly, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is the one whose blood was shed as a perfect sacrifice for sin. He's the one who three days later rose again from the dead and he's the one who is coming again to execute judgment on planet earth. He's not just the lamb. John describes him a few verses earlier as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Jesus is both the lamb and the lion. Do you remember that moment in C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where Aslan is killed on the stone table because of Edmund's sin and selling out to the white witch and that's a wonderful picture of Jesus as the lamb of God slain for your sin and my sin but just a few hours later the lion roars and executes his judgment on the white witch and all all her cohorts and he brings his righteous rule and his righteous reign to bear on Narnia so what I want to do in uh, the time that I've, I've got this morning is look at three basic questions. What is the wrath of God? What does God get angry about? And how do I respond to the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? What does God get angry about? And how do I respond to God's wrath? First question I'll deal with very simply, just with a basic definition of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's settled anger towards sin, expressed in repayment of suitable vengeance on guilty sinners. In other words, God's wrath is not an impulsive, reactive type anger. I don't know what you get angry about. I get angry about all sorts of things. And you know how often in, um, in, we can be quite self-justifying and, and, and Paul says in, in Ephesians, doesn't he, in your anger do not sin. So we as Christians like to think, it's okay to be angry, you can be righteously angry. I've never met many righteously angry Christians. When I get angry I tend to just be reactive and impulsive and I normally have to do a lot of repenting afterwards. When God gets angry, it's never an impulsive, reactive anger. It is a measured, just 
reward for sin. It is a settled anger towards sin. Let's look at what makes God angry now. And I've got a number of things that I uh, want to just identify. The first one, obviously, is sin. But that's a bit general, but we'll just deal with that for a moment. We've already seen this in, in the definition, that actually God's wrath is his settled anger towards sin. So we see in Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So God burns with holy anger against your sin, against my sin, and the sin of the entire human race. God gets angry about sin. God is angry about the injustice in our world. When I was doing this and preparing this, uh, over the last few weeks, I thought I'd do a study on where the wrath of God appears in Scripture and work through each passage. And when I looked at the first mention of the wrath of God, I thought, well, I know where it's going to be. It's going to be in the story of Noah. It's going to be how God was angry with that generation that Noah was a part of because of their sin. Or, if it's not that, isn't it going to be, you know, the idolatry um, that, that be, uh, becomes evident in, in the book of Exodus? But actually, I was surprised at the first mention of God's wrath in Scripture. Listen to this. This is Exodus twenty-two, twenty-two. You shall not wrong a sojourner, that's an immigrant, or oppress him, for you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. God gets really, really wrathful, full of righteous anger, at the injustice in our world. Sometimes you and I get a little feeling of that when we look at things that we know instinctively stink in our world. When you hear about the sex trafficking of little girls in Eastern Europe or the Far East sold into prostitution, or you hear of children working in India for 50p a day so people like us in the West can have uh, cool trainers. You think there is something fundamentally unjust in our world. And God sees that, and he's angry about it. God gets angry about idolatry. Remember the story of the golden calf in the book of Exodus? Moses is up the mountain. He's away a little bit longer than the children of Israel imagine he's going to be. So Aaron has a bright idea. Let's make our own God. And Moses comes down from the mountain. And Moses describes God's wrath as burning hot against his people. That's Exodus 32 and verse 11. Moses comes down from the mountain and he says, God's wrath is burning hot towards his people. 
I must admit, I'm a bit of a pyromaniac. And uh, my wife will tell you that I, we've got a nice open fire. And during the winter, I get lots of wood and lots of coal. And uh, I get a nice switch off the central heating. That's boring. Just get a nice big open fire going. And uh, when those coals are burning, burning hot... And you're not sure what's fire and what's coal, because the two are so entwined. That's how God's emotions are. God is an emotional God. And God's emotional response to idolatry is he is burning hot towards it. God gets angry about unbelief. I'm not talking about small faith here. God loves faith wherever he sees faith, even if it's only a little tiny bit of faith. He loves it and he rewards it and he blesses it. But where there is obstinate rejection of him in the form of unbelief, God's wrath is towards such people. So in the desert, with the children of Israel being provided by quails and manna on a daily basis, the promise is that when it comes to a Friday, you're going to get double portions, guys, so that you don't have to work on a Saturday and collect it up on a Saturday, because Saturday is a day of rest, is a day holy to the Lord. But you know what? The Israelites thought that they knew best. So they decided, actually, I'm not really sure that God is going to do what he has promised he will do. So they actually um, didn't trust God to provide as he said that he would. And the anger of the Lord, Numbers 11.33, is kindled against his people. It's the same image there, kindling as in fire. God is fiery in his anger towards his own people because of their unbelief and just one final one before we look at how we respond to the wrath of God and I'm going to pick up on this one a bit later on God gets angry about disobedience if you look at the story of Saul in the Old Testament remember King Saul the guy who's head and shoulders above anybody else in the kingdom he's so impressive at first but in the end he loses the kingdom and he loses the kingdom because one of the reasons one of the crucial reasons he's told to kill Amalek and actually when it comes to the crunch he kills some of the Amalekites but he doesn't do a proper job and he doesn't kill the king who's Agag and that sin not only comes back to haunt Saul, it comes back to haunt the whole people of God a number of hundred years later. And as I say, we'll come back to that point later on. Told you this was a fairly serious preach. Let's look at now how I, as a Christian, or maybe as someone who's not yet a Christian, how do I respond to this idea of the wrath of God. First thing we need to understand is we need to have a right 
demeanour. We need to have a right approach to God. James says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And that's a really interesting verse because it's one of, th- uh, one of very few verses in the Bible that I can think of that actually is quoted three times. Once in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs and twice in the New Testament here in James and also in 1 Peter 5. That God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Well, the obvious thing that follows on from that, as I come before God, I need to come humbly. Not proudly, not arrogantly. I need to come knowing that outside of Christ, I'm a sinner, or I was a sinner, coming before a holy God. And God, in his grace and his mercy, as we'll hear from Rich tomorrow, forgives my sin deals with my iniquity, iniquity, it's all dealt with at the cross. And we come with confidence and we come with boldness because of Jesus and what he's done. But we do come with humility. We don't come with pride or arrogance because pride and arrogance suggest that we've got some part in the deal. Actually, the only thing that we brought to the table was our sin and rebellion and disobedience. So we have a right demeanour when we come before God. We come in humility, conscious. It's all of his grace and all of his mercy. You see that with men and women in the Old Testament that God lays hold of and uses powerfully. People like Moses, people like David. These are guys who've messed up big time. They've done serious stuff wrongly. You know, um, you know, big time. And when they come before God, they come conscious that it's all because of his mercy. So a right demeanour. Second one, a reverencing of the word of God. A reverencing of the word of God. This is the one, says Isaiah in chapter 66, verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. How seriously do you and I take the word of God? Isaiah says that actually our love, God's heart, is to bless people who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at the word of God. Let's not be casual about the word of God. Let's not be dismissive. Let's not be light in our treatment. God's word carries real authority in our lives, in our lives personally, in our families, in our churches. Let's be people who humbly submit to the authority of the Word of God. Third one, a broken-heartedness at our sin. A broken-heartedness at our sin. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we need to come and genuinely mourn at the state of our lives, our sin, the mess that we've made, 
first before we enjoy and revel in the grace of God. If we rush to, oh, well, it's, it's all grace, which it is, but actually grace is totally, totally free, but grace is not cheap. Grace is very, very expensive. And we cheapen grace when we are flippant about it. We need to understand the seriousness before we come to faith in Jesus of our condition before a holy God. We need to be genuinely broken-hearted and our sin. If you've ever read Nehemiah 1, when Nehemiah looks at the condition of the people of God when they've been carried off into exile in Babylon, Jerusalem is in ruins, the temple is destroyed, he is desolate, he is broken-hearted, he weeps before God, he's devastated. Next one, we need a fear of God. A fear of God. We don't often in this day and age, hear much preaching about the fear of the Lord. But if you do a study through the book of Proverbs, it is a major theme in the book of Proverbs and actually throughout Scripture as a whole. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So, our evangelism, says Paul, at telling people about Jesus, at least partly, is motivated by a genuine sense of the fear of God. That God is a holy God who is to be reverenced and walked carefully before. And that's why we've come to faith in Jesus. Because actually we're conscious that our sin separates us from a holy God. And then actually as we begin to tell others about Jesus... We need to be clear about the seriousness of sin in people's lives. John Piper tells a, a, a powerful story of uh, when he was, uh, uh, a few years ago, when he had a young son, they went to visit a family friend. And the family friend had a huge Alsatian dog, a German shepherd. And uh, the family friend said, the dog's fine with children. The dog's fine with children. And suddenly there was a knock on the door. And the little boy ran to the door. And the dog began to growl and bark very, very loudly. And the owner of the dog said this. He's fine if you stick close to him. He's fine if you stick close to him. And John Piper says, that's a very good image of our relationship with God. But actually, because we're in close relationship with God, we can embrace him. The child can hug the dog. The child can do all sorts with the dog, play with the dog. But stick close to the dog. Because if you run away, the dog gets pretty angry about it. I remember, you know, have you ever had a serious near-miss experience? Maybe a car crash that never quite happened 
or an incident that leaves a sort of thing in the pit of your stomach. Anyone identify with that? Yeah. I tell you what, when I go back to where I grew up in Liverpool, um, we grew up in inner city Liverpool, and just down the road from where we grew up, there was an old British telecom building, and it had a sort of rusticated um, wall. So uh, there were just bricks occasionally jutting out, and it was very, very high. You know what I used to do when I was nine or ten? Yeah, climb up the building. It was there to be climbed, wasn't it? That's why it was there. That's why it had been built, so scallies like me could climb. Now when I go back, I look at the height of the wall. I am in fear. I think, you stupid boy. What could you have done? There needs to be a right fear of God. There needs to be a right understanding of the dimensions of hell. Let me give you a scripture here. Not one that's quoted often. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let me read that again. It's a powerful, sobering verse. It's a terrifying prospect. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Just a couple more, and then we're going to give time to respond this morning to what God's been saying and doing. Next one, we need a huge view of Jesus. That's what Andrew was doing so magnificently for us yesterday. The infinite worth and the power of the achievements of Jesus. When we look at a book like we're looking at this phrase from, the book of Revelation, much of this book is about the wrath of God, but it starts with Revelation 1, a magnificent revelation of Jesus. And running right through the book of Revelation, there are constant references to the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb. Because actually what John is wanting to do, and what John is wanting to say, is actually this is all about the saving work of Jesus on the cross. That it's only through his blood that the burning, white-hot anger of a holy God against your sin and against my sin is dealt with. That God's holy anger burns against your sin and my sin, but at the cross it's all laid on Jesus. It's all poured out. That's what we mean when we talk about penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. That God's wrath at the cross is all poured out on Jesus. It's all laid on him. 
That's what Paul describes in Romans 3.25, that Jesus is an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And Rich will be developing those sorts of themes tomorrow when we look at the mercy of God. We need a bigger view of Jesus. Our view of Jesus is so small. And just finally, we need to make a decision to kill sin in our lives before sin kills us. Now, you remember late, uh, earlier on when we went through some of the um, things that make God wrathful to human beings. One of the things that makes God angry is this thing about disobedience. And we talked about how Saul was deliberately and specifically disobedient to God on the issue of destroying Amalek. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 28 verse 18. He's told to destroy Amalek completely. Saul does a half-hearted job. He spares the livestock and he spares the Amalekite king whose name is King Agag. Now, when you read about stuff like this in the Old Testament, you think, well, yeah, I, I find it difficult to get my head round. Why is God saying, let's kill a whole tribe of Amalekites? What did the Amalekites ever do? Well, Amalek was a grandson of Esau. And Esau is an ungodly man who places no value on spir spiritual things. So the Amalekites in the Old Testament speak of unspirituality, they speak of the flesh. And Saul is told, destroy the lot. And he fails to do that. He spares uh, King Agag. Now I want you to fast forward in your minds about 500 years and we move now to the time of Queen Esther. You remember the story of Esther, how God raises up this godly woman to save his people because there is a plot to exterminate God's people, the Jews. Guess who was behind the plot? He was a man called Haman who is described as an Agagite. He's a descendant of Agag and the Amalekites. Do you see what I'm saying? That Saul's failure to deal radically with sin 500 years later threatens to rebound in the wiping out and the destruction of the whole people of God. The message is destroy sin because if you don't deal radically with sin, it will catch up with you and it will destroy you. Not being thoroughly obedient to God can come back to haunt us a lot more than we might realise. I'm not talking there about losing your salvation if you're a genuine Christian. But I'm talking about the serious consequences of a failure to deal with sin. 
Right, I just want to draw things to a conclusion now, and I'm going to call for a response in a moment. I want us to consider for a moment our condition outside of Christ. One of the verses we often love to quote, Ephesians 2, 3, we were objects of wrath. And we read it out, it's been read out dozens if not hundreds of times in our church and probably yours as well. And it trips off the tongue. But do we really understand what we're reading when we talk about our condition outside of Christ? We were objects of wrath. God's considered anger is against us because of our sin. That's our condition before we're Christians. So I do want to give an opportunity for people, even on a, uh, a church camp who've not yet come to clear personal faith in Jesus, to respond to the gospel. But actually, what we've talked about this morning is one side of the coin. We're going to get to hear the other side of the coin tomorrow. We've heard wrath today. Tomorrow we're going to hear about grace and mercy. But even in just hearing the bad news and anticipating what the good news is going to be tomorrow, there is an opportunity to respond to the gospel. 250, 270 years ago, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers uh, from uh, America, preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of of an angry God, in which he painted a picture of people on the very precipice of hell itself. And that's our condition outside of Christ. And he says the floorboards are creaking and groaning as these people are about to drop into an abyss. And he called for a response. And uh, it was not a huge meeting. It was not a meeting of many, many thousands of people, but pretty much the whole room responded and was seriously converted. But in that context, there were not lots of nominal church-going. And nominal church-going doesn't satisfy the righteous anger of a holy God against sin. It's only the blood of Jesus that adequately deals with sin. So there's a chance to respond to the gospel. For others of us, we need afresh to genuinely understand and be amazed by the grace of God. We can only truly understand and be amazed by grace if we've understood the depth of our sin. And we need to be ruthless with sin. Don't compromise with sin. Deal with it before it catches up with you and does you great, great harm. Bring it into the light. That's what John says in 1 John. God is light, and him, in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I want to encourage you this morning, if the band comes up, be ruthless with sin. Cut sin off. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. If your hand offends you, don't massage it, don't make it feel better, cut it off. If your eye offends you, don't go to the opticians, gouge it out, he says. Now, obviously they're metaphors, I'm not recommending that literally. What I'm saying is take what Jesus says seriously. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking to Christians, he's talking to disciples, be radical with sin. There is no place for sin in your life. Don't play with it, don't compromise with it, deal with it. Bring it to the cross, ask for forgiveness, ask for grace, and be sober and serious about the, the, the weight of sin. Let's stand up, shall we?